to renew some old acquaintances and then gather some some new ones in, but it is a blessing to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This first lesson uh, really does serve as the foundation for our theme in this gospel meeting, and so I hope it will be profitable to you. I'm sure that many of you have uh, read extensively, as you've read through the New Testament, read extensively perhaps from the book of Colossians. It is uh, much like Philippians in that it is very encouraging. There is a lot of uh, what often is called superlative language. You know, when you read from Ephesians, for instance, and uh, you come across a text like exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, just reading that, it feels very poetic, inspired by the Holy Spirit as it is, but also very encouraging. And that's superlative language with all the adjectives. Colossians has a lot of that. Some have said that Ephesians' theme is the church of Christ, that the theme of Colossians is the Christ of the church. They are very similar. In fact, it would do us all well when we study Ephesians to look at Colossians and when you study Colossians to look at Ephesians. But when we think about the book of Colossians and the, just the greatness and the majesty and the supreme authority of who Jesus is, that, that is so obvious from the very beginning. And perhaps it is you're thinking, well, you know, I've read from Colossians and, and when I begin to think about Colossians, I remember what's in Colossians 1. There's that great text there in Colossians 1, not only about our blessings in Christ, but about who Jesus is. And we have language like Him being the firstborn of all creation in verse 15, or mentioning His kingdom in verse 13, or the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. But then we read in verse 17 that He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. We read that the fullness of God's blessings reside in Him. So He's our everything. And you'll probably remember, okay, that's Colossians 1, the preeminence of Christ. And then we come to Colossians chapter 2, and it's very similar. And you'll notice there in verse 10 that we can have the fullness by being in the body of Christ. All these spiritual blessings. He talks a lot about that in Colossians 2 and warns us about being deceived by the vain philosophy and futile thinking and philosophies of men. And then there's Colossians 3. Who could forget Colossians 3 and verse 17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that whole text, he talks about relationships and he talks about our marriages and our parenting and all of those sorts of things. But that's all under the headship, the lordship of Jesus. And I'm sure as you think about Colossians, you can remember very clearly Colossians 1. At least this is my experience personally. And maybe you can remember quite a bit of Colossians 2 just off the top of your head if you've read it. And certainly Colossians 3 talks about worshiping God and praising God and, and Jesus' Lordship. But if I asked you about Colossians chapter 4, this is almost like the little brother in the house that nobody wants to pay attention to, isn't it? 
what is there in Colossians 4? It's not just an add-on. What is in Colossians 4? And I'll have to plead guilty to you on this one that it's easy to just kind of read over. Maybe we pick a part here and a part there. I read one writer that suggested maybe we should read Colossians backwards. Because Colossians 4 talks about some really concrete things and relationships that are central to the gospel of Christ that help us appreciate the other things that are in Colossians, in Colossians 1, 2, and 3. And so, as we think about this concept of living this new life, even though we live in a sinful world, in a corrupt world, and by the way, that's not new. First century Christians lived in a society that was much like ours. Believed in many gods, involved in idolatry and moral corruption and all of those things, and yet they were spreading the gospel. So we're going to focus on Colossians chapter 4 as we think about living this new life. And we're really going to, for the most part, stay in this context and maybe hit a few other passages, especially Ephesians. So one of the first things we see as we think about this is the notion, if I can hit the right button, there we go. When I preached in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I was about 20, somebody said they knew me when I was 20 years old. Who was that? Oh, there you are. And he didn't remember this. I said, I was skinny and I had hair back then. But when I, <laughs> when, when, when I was uh, preaching in Tulsa, they used to, they nicknamed me the high-tech redneck. Well, I'm a low-tech redneck now, so you have to look over me. But one of the first things we see in Colossians is this idea of the new life of prayer. So as we are risen with Christ, and look at Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. That's talking about our transformation in Christ. It's talking about our conversion. Very familiar text throughout the New Testament. The old man of sin being put to death, that new person being raised to walk in the interest of life. The idea of renewal and restoration and transformation. But Paul is going to be moving us from, and them, the, those who were at Colossae, from the blessings and the richness of Christ, does the same thing in Ephesians, by the way, to the call of those blessings. In other words, it's wonderful that we have all these blessings, but what does that mean for your life? What does it mean for your marriage? What does it mean for you as a parent? What does it mean for us as we serve God? And so one of the first things he comes to when you think about being risen with Christ when we come to Colossians 4 begins in verse 2. Let's read together. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let's stop there for just a minute. All of those texts are really important. So he's been talking in Colossians about the blessings of being a Christian, the redemption we have in Christ, the fullness we have in Christ, the lordship of, of surrendering to Jesus as Lord. And so the exaltation of Christ. 
But what does that mean for us? What does it look like? What are these changes that occur? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 2 again, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. As those risen with Christ, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. You might remember that in Acts the second chapter on the day of Pentecost, as those people had gladly received the word and were baptized, and there was added unto them about 3,000 souls, verse 42 says, they continued in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and in prayers together. Other things are mentioned there as well. But the idea of prayer is one of the marked, significant things about God's people. Blessings of God's people. So he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now I want to do something with you. Come back to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Very similar context there. Now this is the section you'll recall where he's been talking about this putting on of the armor of God. And fighting that spiritual battle. And most of us are probably fairly familiar with that. He talks about the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and having your feet prepared with the gospel and etc. But then we kind of stop reading sometimes, but keep reading with me. Verse 17, after he says, take the helmet of salvation. By the way, all these are defensive pieces of the armor against the uh, fiery darts of the wicked one. But then he says... And the sword of the Spirit, that's our offensive weapon, isn't it? So when you go into battle, you don't just have defensive pieces of armor here. When you go into battle, you go with an offensive attack as well. And he says that's the sword of the Spirit. By the way, there are some people who tend lately to minimize, they say they don't, but they do, they minimize and marginalize the, the power of the Word of God. They tell you that's not really sufficient. There has to be something else. I've seen people say, is this really all we have? Listen to me. I understand the Bible is not the Holy Spirit. We all understand that. But the Holy Spirit, as a divine person of the Godhead, revealed the Word of God. And so when we're reading from the Word of God, we're reading the words that have been revealed by the Spirit. So the Spirit is working through the instrumentality of the Word of God. Listen to what he says. The sword, there's the instrument, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is the sword we have in our hand? It's the Word of God. It's the same sword Jesus had in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted. And all three times you remember he said it is written. It's the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth in the book of Revelation as he rides in victory on that white horse. It's that two-edged sword that you read about in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so let's be careful when we begin to say things like that, not that anybody here would ever say anything like that, but when you hear, if you ever hear somebody somehow minimizing the notion of the Spirit influencing and teaching and convicting and encouraging you through the Word of God, then you know there's a problem. 
And so as we look at Ephesians 6, coming out of that verse 18, he says, with all prayer. So take the sword of the Spirit with something. So I take the Word of God with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, which is much like what we read in Colossians chapter 4. Now, if you'll read that carefully, somebody says, well, Bruce, what does it mean that we have prayer and petition and we pray at all times in the Spirit? What does that mean? That's not really describing some miraculous experience. What he's saying is, when you think about praying in the Spirit or living in the Spirit or walking in the Spirit, or being led by the Spirit. What does that mean? When I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm surrendering to what the Spirit has revealed, and therefore I'm leading a, a life that is in harmony with what the Spirit has revealed. When I'm walking by the Spirit, it's under His influence. So when I make decisions, I ask, what does the Lord want me to do? What does He say in His Word? Thus I'm being led by the Spirit's teaching. To pray in the Spirit. Jude talks about praying in the Holy Ghost, but praying in the Spirit means as I pray to God, I'm in full surrender to the will of God. That's what that's talking about. And so he says that in Ephesians 6, but I want you to come back to Colossians chapter 4 for just a minute. It's, there's something interesting here about us praying. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Look at verses 12 and 13. When he gets into this list of, of people that were close to him, people that helped him and strengthened him, he mentions a man by the name of Epaphras. He says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always labors earnestly for you. Now, now I want you to notice this. Always labors, the New American Standard Bible says, earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Let's think about that for just a minute. So he says, says be, be devoted to prayers. If you're living this new life, it's a new life of prayer. But then he even gives an example. Here was a brother Epaphras that he holds up and he says, look at how he's praying for you. Now the translation that I'm using says he was this was something he did out of out of this earnest laboring for you in prayer. When's the last time we prayed like that? For our brethren. And he says it was because of his deep concern, but there's something interesting in that word. It depends on what translation you have. The English Standard Version, the ESV says he was struggling on their behalf in his prayers. Now he's not struggling in his faith, the very opposite is true. He's, he's not struggling in his desire to pray for them or his confidence in the Lord or anything like that. He's so deeply concerned for them, there's a sense of a spiritual struggle that we're all involved in against sin. And this concern runs so deep that it could be described as he's struggling on their behalf and praying for them. And again, I ask, 
When's the last time we prayed in that way? Another translation says, and I love this one, He is always wrestling in prayer for you. Don't you want to have faithful Christians, faithful brothers and sisters who are wrestling in prayer for you? What a wonderful blessing. Well, there's something that we have to watch out though for. St. Colossians 4. He says, devote yourselves, this new life of prayer, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So when we think about this new life of prayer, it's a, it's a life of earnestness and diligence and love for one another. But then going further with this, there's something that needs to accompany our prayers for an important reason. You know, prayer is one of those things where if my mind is right toward God, if my attitude is right toward God, it's, it's very effective and powerful by God's design. But if you're a selfish person, and selfishness is just this way, this is just how sin works. If, if sin is in, in your heart, now think about this for a minute. If sin is in your heart and selfishness is in your heart, do you realize that even contaminates prayer? Sometimes we pray very selfishly. James talks about people who, he says some of them just don't ask. But then there's others, they pray from their own selfish desires. That's not pleasing to God. Well, there is something that will prevent that from happening. In fact, the word here, some translate it as alert, others being watchful. It's a military term to guard or defend. There's something that will defend our prayers from becoming carnal and fleshly. And here it is. It's Thanksgiving. And you might do this sometime, almost every time I can find. And it makes sense when we think about it, but almost every time you ever find the notion of petition or supplication or prayer, you're going to find Thanksgiving. Now, that's not the only aspect of prayer, but it guards our heart when we're thankful to God. Even when we are suffering, we're thankful to God. Even when we're having a hard time and we're praying to God for a particular thing, Thanksgiving keeps us from allowing Satan to manipulate our thinking through temptation. And so if we're going to live this new life, this new life of prayer, we recognize that, that we don't want our prayer life to be denigrated into merely a drive-through window for fleshly desires. This is something where we're communing with God and we're surrendering to God and it does something else. It, it, it helps us to be productive in our lives as Christians. It guards our prayer through thanksgiving. It also causes us to be alert spiritually. You know, if you pray with a thankful heart, you're going to have an alert mind. Think about when we're not alert to temptation, when we're not watchful. Often, a lack of thanksgiving is also going on. We're living selfishly. And so he says, no, let's not do that. And so in Colossians chapter 4, and there in, in verse 2, right away he mentions that. Now let's go a little further and think about the fact that he says, not only is this a new life of prayer, it's a new life of proclamation. You know, when you're not a Christian or you're not dedicated to the Lord, you just kind of go about your business and maybe you're not thinking a whole lot about other people. You're not looking for opportunities. And we can even be caught into that as, as Christians. 
But this is not only a new life of prayer, it's a new life of proclamation. Now, there is what some writers call biblical echoes. You may have seen these before. You probably do. Sometimes it's an Old Testament story and it gets replayed. Let me give you a quick example of that that you're probably very familiar with. New Testament writers do this all the time. But, but you know, you think of the exodus of Israel, right? But then you come to the New Testament and you think about our deliverance from the bondage of sin. 1 Corinthians 10 shows the unbelief of Israel and warns Christians not to do that. Those are all biblical echoes. In other words, you have a, you have a story that gets replayed in a highly spiritual way in the New Testament. But even in a book, sometimes that happens. So what we have here, look at Colossians 4 and in verse 3 says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He says, listen, the new life is a life of proclamation. The new life is, is sharing Christ with those who are around me, with my neighbors and friends and family that are lost, one person at a time. And so we see that our mission is to proclaim Jesus as Lord, praying at the same time for us, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Come back to Colossians 1. Where does this kind of begin? Well, if you come back to Colossians 1, pick up in verse 24 with me, and then I think Paul's just replaying it in Colossians chapter 4. So in Colossians 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is for free, but I just want, want to point out, so we have heard some who try to act as though when Paul says filling up the afflictions of Christ, that somehow Christ's afflictions weren't quite sufficient and Paul had to do some more. That's foolish. No, Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. What he's saying is me trying to walk in his footsteps is the challenge, not him walking in mine. So, so we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus, and so Jesus perfectly sacrificed himself. I'm trying in my life to fill that up. You see? I'm trying to fulfill his will in that way. Verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Now watch this. Excuse me. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. So he's going to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look at verse 28 and 29. This is... The objective. By the way, we want to baptize people into Christ so that they'll be redeemed. But that's the beginning, friends. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. This is the goal. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we, here's the goal, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to the power which he mightily works within me. Now look at what he's saying. He's saying the goal is that we are mature in Jesus. It's not just baptizing somebody. That's where it begins. That's the new birth. Now they're a babe in Christ. But the goal 
And by the way, this is what edification is. It's to equip one another to serve God at, at the highest level possible. And so, and so when you look at Colossians 4, it sounds a lot like this section in Colossians chapter 1. And this mystery, which is used a lot in the New Testament, is the plan of bringing sinners to a right relationship with God and Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Christ. And you can read about that in Ephesians and Colossians. That's been revealed in the gospel of Christ. And so we should be so excited about that. There's no barrier. There's no obstacle. There's, there's no wall that says, well, this person uh, and not that person or, or I need to focus on these folks and not those folks. No. Now God's always loved Jew and Gentile, by the way. He sent Jonah to a group of people Jonah didn't want to go to, but God wanted Jonah to go to. He sent prophets to Gentiles in the Old Testament. But when we come to the Gospel, you really see the scope of the Gospel. That should be exhilarating to us so that we share the Gospel in this proclamation. Look at chapter 4 in verse 4. What is he asking for us to pray for? He says that I need you to pray for us. Look at verse 4. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And several translations render it that way. What's he, what's he saying here? Well, Ephesians, let's go back to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians 6.20 helps us, I think. He's not saying, even though, I mean, we all understand how something is presented does affect our ability to follow it and appreciate it and understand it. But he's not saying, hey, I want you to pray that I'll be eloquent. Not in this verse. Which is inspired of the Holy Spirit. I suppose the Spirit can take care of it. But that's, that's not what he's asking for. He's asking for something else that we need to be praying for. We need to be praying for this too. Listen to this, Ephesians 6.20. He says, pray on my behalf in verse 19 that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with what? With boldness, with courage. Do we pray for that? So when, he, when we come back to uh, Colossians chapter 4, and he's saying, I need you to pray for me. What he's saying is, I need you to pray that I will fully preach the Word of God. Now, am I saying that our form of presentation, that we shouldn't focus on that? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I will say this, that's not the first thing we need to be focused on. The substance of the message and making sure it is true and it is the Word of God. Let's ask that question. Could somebody be just super eloquent and, and very easy on the ears? You know what I'm talking about? And, and you go, wow, that was, he's good. And preach false doctrine? Now just because someone is polished in his speaking doesn't make him a false teacher. But there's a whole lot of folks that have been deceived because they were listening to outward superficial things and not to what was actually being taught. Paul says, when you pray for me, here's what I want you to pray for. Good thing nobody's right here because I sweat and it flies sometimes when I'm up here. So, 
We've got a couple at home, Todd and Karen Dennis, and I'll watch them. They'll do like this during the sermon. But what are we praying for? We're praying that we'll be, and we often do, we, we pray that we'll be able to understand the message. We pray that God will be with whoever's preaching or teaching or proclaiming or whatever it is. But that's, that's the right thing to pray for. The fullness, the, the fullness of the proclamation of the Word of God. Now look at chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. There's three things he mentions to us that are well worth our, our time. You know, sometimes we'll say, well, I don't know. As long as it's the truth, this is the flip side of what I just told you. As long as it's the truth, it really doesn't matter how it's said. Now, granted, there are some rather unsavory individuals that can preach the truth and people still be converted. And Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 1. You remember he talks about some preach the gospel sincerely and then others preach it out of selfish ambition. But he says, I rejoice that Christ is preached. So they wouldn't have, he wouldn't have rejoiced in them teaching error. The Judaizers were teaching error. He never rejoiced in them preaching. He called them dogs. But he says, you know what? God will take care of their motives. Are there people that preach the truth that just have terrible motives that are selfish? Well, apparently so, because he said there were. But then there's others that aren't like that at all. In either case, though, if I'm just listening to the message, I can still learn the truth. That's Paul's point. However, in this text, he says, for those of us who are striving to please God, we need to preach the truth, but we also need to do so in the right way because we're sharing Christ and modeling the Spirit of Christ in the process. So look at verse 5. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. This is all part of the proclamation. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So there's, there's fundamentally, when we think we've talked about this, this new prayer life, okay? Oh, we're going back. We've talked about the new prayer life. We've talked about this new life of proclamation. There, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 is that we've been focused on, that we would speak boldly and courageously and clearly uh, from the Word of God. And we notice that that earlier section is an echo that's coming back out about how we ought to be sharing Christ. And Paul's not just asking for him to be eloquent, but praying for the fullness of the gospel. But then, as we move on, there's these things he tells us. He says there's the, in this new life of proclamation, first of all, wisdom in how we do it. Think about how you're going to say it. Don't be reckless. Think about how to share this, this gospel. So he says, be wise. Now, I really want you to see this in chapter 4 and verse 5. Be wise Toward who? Outsiders. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because there are some who say, you know, what we need to do in the process of evangelizing others is not just be kind, not just you know preach the truth in love, but we need to stop focusing on the fact that they're lost. That's kind of alienating people. And, and let's, you know, blur the lines to the point. Let's not talk about all these distinctive things regarding the New Testament church. 
Let's not talk about the distinctive things about the gospel. Let's just kind of, you know, go with the flow and, and fit in and, and not really preach the truth. Now, I want to tell you guys something. What I just described to you is not just sermon material. Because I've heard preachers in very what should be conservative churches and the past have been very conservatively biblically minded congregations say exactly what I just told you. Yet, when Paul is talking about being kind, what does he call those who are not Christians? We love them. We used to be there. He calls them outsiders. Now here's what I want to say. He's telling us be wise and be loving. But don't forget that there's lost people out there. People we love, people we work with, people we go to school with, people we come in contact with, people that our kids are friends with and we get to talk to each other. He says, remember, they're out, why are they outsiders? They're outside of the body of Christ. We're trying to bring them in. But if we pretend that they're inside when they're actually outside, then no, there won't be a need to evangelize. So that whole evangelism model in an evangelism model at all. It compromises the proclamation of the gospel. My dad uh, has told a story before. There was a man, and I, I knew who he was, who worshipped with us. He eventually was disciplined. And uh, the fellow that he was studying with, this particular brother was actually, he preached by appointment, and he you know, went to different congregations. He was actually a very good speaker and a very intelligent man. But this friend of my dad's was not a member of the Lord's church. And uh, this fellow invited him, this brother in Christ invited him to go to one of his preaching appointments. And he said, it was like Sunday night, and he said, okay, I'll, I'll go with you. And he, this man that's not a Christian told my dad, he said, my dad's name is Carl. He said, Carl, that was, that was one of the best sermons I'd ever heard. And he said, he talked about obeying the gospel and becoming a Christian. Now, I realized that if the truth is the truth, it's the truth. But how we live and how we conduct ourselves, an example we set makes a, a big difference on somebody who's early on in this process. He said everything was going good and I was thinking about my need to become a member of the Church of Christ. He said, but on the way home, this fellow that preached this wonderful sermon stopped at a liquor store. Now, let me ask you something. Let me just ask you something. Besides the fact that there was sin involved in that, how likely is that man going to be to listen to that man preach again? Zero. Paul says to use wisdom, to be committed to truth, to love others. Then look at verse 5. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. In fact, the original word here of make the most of every opportunity, do you know that it actually means to, 
to buy up, to purchase up. That's what I do. Sean knows when I go to half price books in Dallas, Texas. I buy a whole lot of stuff up. This is what my wife does when she walks into a store. She sees 50% off. He, that word means to buy up. Now what does it mean? He's saying take advantage of every opportunity. Be looking for those opportunities. Be aware of those opportunities. Take advantage of every single opportunity. In other words, buy up each valuable moment by maximizing every opportunity. And we all miss them sometimes. But have your mind aware. And then look at chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, frame all conversations with grace. So rather than developing arrogance and being involved in hot-headed diatribes with non-believers, we're to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of the reason of the hope which is in you with, with meekness and fear. And so how do we speak? We speak wisely. We speak truthfully. We speak kindly. We strive to be gracious and loving and persuasive. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. I want to just touch on this fairly quickly. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Remember he says, I need you to pray at the same time for us as well. This is our other point. And that is the idea that providence is involved. If we're going to proclaim and if we're going to pray, we recognize God's providence. Let's talk just briefly about that. There's a lot about providence I may not understand, but here's what I do know. I know that the God we serve does not have to perform that which is miraculous in order to be involved in human events. I know that from the Scripture. And so when we pray for the sick, we pray for the doctors. Why do we do that? Because we believe God can be involved in the healing process through natural law, through natural means. And we have examples of that in the Scripture as well. So he says, listen, I need you to pray that doors will be open. Let me ask you something. What is that going to look like if doors are open? Somebody says, well, in my mind, what that looks like is that we need to pray. When we pray for doors being open. We're praying for circumstances to be so ideal and so perfect that we'll have an opportunity to share the gospel. Are you sure about that? What's interesting to me is if you go back and do just one of those cross-reference studies and you look up the idea of a door being opened in the New Testament, that often the, the opportunity for the gospel came when things weren't so easy. Sometimes it's in the greatest adversity that the door has been opened for the gospel. Let me, let me just make a few points, and, and I'm just going to reference these passages, but in Acts 14 and verse 27, the Bible says God opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. You might want to read all of Acts chapter 14 there because there was some adversity from the Jews. There was some persecution. Or 1 Corinthians 16.9, God opened a wide door for effective service. Somebody said, wow, that sounds so good. But when you keep reading, he says, 
that there were adversaries. So there were these adversaries, and yet while there were adversaries. Now sometimes adversaries get removed, granted, but not always. So when we are dealing with difficulty, the question is, is there an open door? 2 Corinthians 2.12, a door was opened for me in the Lord. There was adversity going on in that passage. Paul says when he was in prison, there was a door being opened. There was advancement happening with the gospel, even though he was being imprisoned. Now, God's providence does not overwhelm our human free will, but it works with it. And then finally, and the lesson will be yours, which means nothing, but I'll go with it. There's one more thing I want you to think about about this new life. So we've talked about prayer and we've talked about proclamation and we've talked about providence. The fourth one starts with a P. It's got to. <laughs> so here we are. Participation and partnership. The rest of Colossians, the majority of Colossians chapter 4, to end the book about what Jesus has done for us and who He is and, and this new life in Christ. is about our partnership together. And we won't go into details, but there was Tychicus and Onesimus. Some of these names you'll will ring a bell. Aristarchus. Mark, you remember Mark? His struggle had gone away. And um, Paul and Barnabas had the disputation and difference between themselves. And Barnabas, probably some nepotism there, but by God's mercy, Help Mark along. And later on in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, bring Mark, he's profitable. He's, he's come back. And, and Demas, who here seems like he's doing pretty well by that time, has fallen away. There was Justice and Epaphras. There's Luke. There were Jews and Gentiles in this list, by the way. And Nympha. Some discuss whether that was a woman or man doesn't matter as far as this context is concerned. I'll go with she opened up her house for God's people to meet. Now here's, here's what an archipus who was a faithful minister. We need each other. If we haven't learned anything in the last several years or a few years, we ought to learn this, brethren. In a world that is hostile against Christ in the first century world and in our world today, we need each other. So, when you come to Colossians 4, maybe, maybe somebody says, do you remember anything about Colossians 4? Maybe say, you know what, there's a whole lot of Colossians 4 that we can use in our lives so that if I really believe Jesus is Lord, I'm going to be involved in prayer in my life. I'm going to Proclaim the gospel. I'm going to trust the, the providence of God. And I'm going to engage in participation with my fellow Christians in service to Him. But you know, you can't do any of that. Not really. You can't enjoy the fullness of the gospel and the blessing of redemption if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we want to invite you. Will you come? Will you come and obey the gospel of Jesus and enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. Come now, as together we stand. Amen.